Please turn with me in your Bibles or the bulletin to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22. We are going to be looking at the entire chapter, uh, but reading most of it, but not quite the whole chapter. We'll start in verse 1. Joshua chapter 22, beginning of verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it. And they said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And then they came, and they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today and then tomorrow, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. 
for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle." When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Those of you that are here this morning that are already members of Oakwood Presbyterian Church have taken vows of membership. And the last vow that you took when you joined the church was this one. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? And promise to study its purity and peace. How's that going for you? How's your study of the purity and peace of the church been going? I think a lot of us probably took that vow and weren't quite sure even what we meant when we vowed it. Hopefully it's something you've grown in your understanding, but the good news is the text, the passage that's in front of us today is all about that. It's a perfect place to study the purity and peace of the church, and that's what we're going to talk about. Church purity and church peace are hard to bring together. There is a real tension in the life of any church to equally pursue peace and to pursue purity. Peace in terms of unity with one another and purity in the sense of doctrinal and practical Christian living. Church history is full of individual churches and denominations that have tended to go for one at the expense of the other. We know ourselves probably many churches or denominations even as a whole that tend to be known for their emphasis on unity and yet very little emphasis on doctrinal purity or purity in Christian living. Or on the other hand, churches or denominations that stress the purity of doctrine and the purity of Christian living, and yet there's very little in the sense of unity among themselves, let alone with other churches. 
We feel like in order to have one, we have to compromise the other. But the scripture consistently calls upon us to equally seek both among believers. And the church has struggled with this from the very beginning. And by the beginning, I don't mean the book of Acts. I mean all the way back outside of the Garden of Eden. Anytime sinners together, it's been a struggle to strive to be righteous and doctrinally right and also unified with other sinners like ourselves. Well, Joshua 22 that we just read is a case study in pursuing purity and peace among God's people. This all begins with a dangerous misunderstanding among God's people. That's nothing unusual. Misunderstandings among God's people happen all the time. You've probably had at least one or two, at least small incidents of it this past week. At the end of chapter 21, it was a real high point in the book of Joshua. Matter of fact, it would have been nice if Joshua kind of ended at the end of chapter 21, just to go back and remember what it said at the last few verses. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the word, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. What a great note to end the book on. But then life happens. And God's people continue to live as sinners under grace. And that means challenges and difficulties will come up in the life of God's people. Suddenly, at the beginning of chapter 2, they go from this wonderful high point to being on the verge of civil war. How does this happen? Well, as we begin chapter 22, again, it's still on a positive note because you have two and a half of the 12 tribes. There were 12 tribes in Israel. Two and a half of them, Gad and Reuben, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. If you will remember, going back to the beginning or going back to earlier parts of scripture, those two and a half tribes, when the people of God, the people of Israel, were coming to the Jordan River, ready to enter into the promised land to conquer the Canaanites and take possession of the land that the Lord had given. At that point, these two and a half tribes looked at the wonderful pasture lands on the other side of the Jordan. They were going to the west. They're going to cross over the Jordan to the west. But on the eastern side of the Jordan, they thought, this land is great. Could we have this land and you guys take the land on the other side of the Jordan? Well, Moses and Joshua both in different situations, said to them, okay, that's fine. If you want the land, the Lord will give you that land. But, this one big condition, you must promise to go with your brothers, the other tribes, to defeat the Canaanites, to drive them, to destroy them, and to take possession of that land for them. Once that land has been taken, then you may go back to your families and your livestock to the pasture lands and settle your land on the eastern side of the Jordan. And so as we begin chapter 22, that's what's happened. The, the western tribes have taken their land and now it's time for these two and a half tribes to go back to the eastern side of the Jordan to take their land. And at the beginning, Joshua commends them. He says, you guys were great. You promised to fight with your brothers on the field of battle to take the land and you did it. And now go. 
with the Lord's blessing, go back to your land. But he gives them one charge, one exhortation as they go, verse 5. And it's going to sound very familiar as you read this verse because it's almost word for word what he had said, what Joshua had said to all the tribes of Israel when they were ready together to cross the Jordan into the promised land. This is what Joshua said, verse 5, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. You see, being part of the people of God under the old covenant, at the core of it, is really not that different than being part of the people of God under the new covenant. Because that's the essence of discipleship. That's what it means to be in covenant with the creator. The creator, the judge of all mankind, the one who created all mankind, had mercy upon us. He chose us. He redeemed us brought us to himself, entered into a relationship with us based upon grace, lovingly provides for his covenant people. And our response, our covenant response to this God who has made this overture to us is to respond by loving him. And the way that we love him is that we submit to his authority and we obey his commandments. That's discipleship. Obedience based upon grace. Obedience that is a loving and thankful response to what God has already done for us. That's covenant faithfulness. And that's what Joshua is telling these two and a half tribes. When you go to the other side of the Jordan, live the life of discipleship. The same life of discipleship that you and I live. Isn't that what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, said to us? If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what loving Christ looks like. And so all is good. Joshua commends these tribes, sends them on their way. Everything's good until they get to the banks of the Jordan River. And it just says in a very simple and black and white way, it says what they did is when they got there, without any explanation, it says they built a big altar. And really the original language in Hebrew stresses that. It was a big altar that they built on the banks of the Jordan River and then again very simply without explanation it says in verse 12 that the western tribes when they heard what the eastern tribes had done they gathered everyone mustered the troops pulled out the armor and got ready to go to war now to us that probably sounds like an overreaction why such a quick and radical response to this altar that the eastern tribes built. Well, let me take you back to the book of Deuteronomy, back to the law of God. Again, discipleship means obeying the Lord out of love and thankfulness for what he's done for us. Well, here's what the Lord commanded back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'll start with verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Over to verse 13. 
Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The people of God were only to worship in the place that God had chosen and had designated. And at this point in their history, we know from our earlier studies in Joshua, that place was Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle was set up. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the priesthood designated by God served. That's where the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices and the other sacrifices that were commanded by God were to be observed. There and there only and only in that way were they to approach God in worship. And if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that unauthorized worship sites was the bane of their existence in Old Testament Israel. What they called high places. Places that often corresponded to where the pagans worshipped. They picked their own places to worship. They picked their own priests. They picked their own sacrifices. And it always very quickly led to idolatry and immorality. And according to the book of Leviticus, again, going back to the law of God, it says there that any sacrifices that were offered in those places, the person who offered those sacrifices in the unauthorized places were to be put to death. And any towns or cities that set themselves up as alternate worship sites were to be destroyed. That's what the law of God demanded. That's what they called church discipline in the old covenant. You were cut off from the community. You see, it was a serious offense. It all goes back to this issue. The essential core, when we talk about unity, what binds us together? What makes us one? What do we share in common? The very core of it is who do we worship and how do we approach him in worship? That's the core of it. I'm not talking about style of music. I'm not talking necessarily about liturgy. What I'm talking about is that we don't get to decide who God is. And we don't get to decide how we approach him. He has given us his word to tell us who he is. He has revealed to us in his word how we are to approach him. The only acceptable way to approach him. And both Old Covenant and New Covenant, the very center of how we approach this holy God as sinners is through blood atonement. Through the offering of the sacrifice of a substitute. That we as sinners are not worthy to walk into the presence of God, to address God. We are worthy only to be cast into hell for eternity. That's what we are worthy of. And so the only way to approach God is through the shed blood of a substitute. And that's what the Old Testament sacrifices were about. That's what the altar where those sacrifices were offered was about. God is who he said he is, and you can only approach him through blood atonement, through a covering of your sin, through shed blood. That's what the tabernacle was about. And it was designed by God to be first in Shiloh, later in Jerusalem, And when those sacrifices were offered on that altar, it pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that all of Scripture is about, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was the only truly acceptable substitute 
for us. He was both fully God and fully man. And he shed his blood on the cross voluntarily as a sacrifice in our place so that God's wrath upon our sin would be poured out upon him and all who put their trust in him would be forgiven and made righteous as a gift. That's the gospel. You see what I'm saying? That's why this altar was so important. Because it was about sacrifice. It was about blood atonement. It was about who God is and how we approach him. And they were setting up a different one. And that's what the word of God makes clear is never acceptable. But then what's interesting is the story takes an interesting twist here. They don't immediately go to war. And what we get is a case study, a lesson on how to pursue both purity and doctrine and lifestyle and unity in the church. And the first lesson is that we must hold one another accountable. We will never have unity in the church unless we are willing to hold one another accountable for the way we live and what we believe. Now, your first impression, now if you, you know, having read through the whole story, you know, you, you read the end, so you know how things turn out. Your first impression might be to say, ah, those Western tribes, see, they were, they were so judgmental. They jumped to conclusions. They're the wrong ones. No, I don't think they were. I think they saw some of God's people building a different altar in a different place. What would you have assumed? Put yourself in their sandals. You would have assumed that they were setting up a different worship place for a different set of priests to offer different sacrifices. That's what you would have assumed. I think it was foolish for them, not necessarily to build the altar, but to do it without seeking permission or authorization, or at least communicating with Joshua and the leadership of the other tribes. But the point is, it was right for the Western tribes to raise the alarm, to say, this looks bad. Jesus said to us, you know, we are to love one another. That's what Christians do. We love one another. And Jesus taught, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. There's the standard. We are to love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. So let me ask you the question. Does Jesus love us by affirming everything that we do and think? Is that how he loves us? Does Jesus love us by turning a blind eye to our sins? Is that how he loves us? Of course not. You see, the love of Christ, if our love for one another is like the love of Christ for us, then it compels us when we see wrong belief and wrong lifestyle in the the lives of one another to help one another to repent, to make one another aware of how we are going astray and helping one another to get back where we should be, both in belief and in practice. Galatians chapter 6, this is what the Apostle Paul says to us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we often, that, that last phrase is the one that we know that we quote all the time from that verse, you know, bear one another's burdens. And when we say that, we usually think of, 
helping hurricane victims or, you know, being there to comfort and, 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 and console somebody who's going through a hard time. That's what we think of when we think about bearing one another's burdens. But in context, it's talking about helping one another see each other's, the sin in each other's lives. That's the context of it. That's the burden that we're to help, bear, that we're to bear together. We're not to fight our sins alone. That's not what Christ intended. But the hard part is that phrase that says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. Some of us find it really easy to point out sins in other people's lives, but if it's easy for you, then your attitude is probably wrong. Because we're not to do it in pride. We're not to do it in a sense of superiority. We're to do it in a sense of love and servanthood. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. And some people use that as a justification for not ever either pointing out sins in somebody else's life or rejecting anybody else trying to point out sin in your life. But he goes on to say, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. And then you begin to understand what he meant by judge. When he said do not judge, he doesn't mean don't discern whether your brother or sister is walking in sin or believing heresy. That's not what he meant. What he meant was don't condemn them. Don't put yourself up on the judgment seat and look down your nose and stick your finger in their face and say, you worthless sinner, how can you live that way? That's the attitude that he's addressing. Again, love one another the same way that Jesus loved us. And Jesus wasn't afraid to call us on our sin. He still isn't. Telling a brother about his sin, telling a sister about her sin isn't easy because of our own sin. But love demands that we point people to Christ. And pointing them to Christ means sometimes helping them see how they have offended his honor, his glory, and his truth. You see, these western tribes were loving the eastern tribes by pointing out what they believed, what they discerned was the wrong way to go. By setting up another altar, by taking the first major steps towards apostasy. But notice that they didn't send the soldiers first. And that's the second lesson. They didn't send the soldiers first. They didn't interpret, discern, and then punish. What they did is they sent a delegation to ask them why they built the altar. And that's crucial. We must refuse to prejudge the intentions of others in the process of helping them with their sin. The Western tribe sent a delegation of leaders. It was headed up by a priest named Phineas. Phineas was the son of Eliezer. The time we meet him earlier in scripture is when he actually stopped a plague. God had sent a plague of judgment upon God's, uh, on his people. And Phineas was the one who stepped forward to stop the plague by punishing the one who was leading in idolatry and immorality. And so Phineas leads this delegation, one leader from each tribe, and they go to the eastern tribes, they go to dialogue before they go to war. They go to ask why. They go to listen for an explanation. You see, they're recognizing something else that scripture clearly teaches. As the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, you can't know what another person's motivations are. You can't see their intentions. 
You need to ask them. You need to dialogue with them. We're quick to judge one another's attention. That's one of the biggest problems we have in communications is that we make judgments about what other people intend be behind what they believe or what they do. I'm sure you've had this kind of an argument where you're in an argument with somebody, your wife, your husband, your roommate, your friend, coworker, and you, in anger you say to the person, but you said this and it made me angry. And the other person says, I didn't say that. And you say, yeah, but that's what you meant. And that's where you cross the line. Because you don't, you're not God. You don't have the right to say what the other person meant by what they said or did. And that's your limitation. That's what these representatives from the Western tribes recognized. We need to ask them. It looks really bad. The optics are terrible here. It looks really bad. But let, me, let us go and talk with them in a calm, loving, reasonable way. And let's listen before we make a judgment. And so Phineas confronts them. If you look at verse 16, he looks at this big altar and he says, this is a breach of faith. It's a turning away from following the Lord. And finally he says, it's an act of rebellion. And then he reminds them of very recent history. The incident at Baal Peor, which is the one I just referred to that Phineas was involved in, where God's people paid the price for the sins of a few. And then reminds them of the one that happened earlier in the book of Joshua with Achan, where the selfish sins of Achan brought judgment on all the people of God. And so he confronts them, lays out the truth before them. And then in verse 19, this is just, it's easy to kind of skip over verse 19, but I think it's important to see the heart behind Phineas and the other representatives of the Western tribes. He says, if they built the altar because they considered the land on the eastern side of the Jordan to be somehow unclean, in other words, not religiously acceptable, if it was somehow considered unclean, then instead of building their own altar and offering their own sacrifices, they should come over and find land and territory, take for themselves land and inheritance on the western side of the Jordan. I point that out because you realize this shows the heart. They were willing to sacrifice from their own inheritance if that would help keep their brothers in the eastern tribes from committing apostasy and rebelling against the Lord. You see what I'm saying? This is the love of Christ. This is a sacrificial love that says, I love you and I will even give up my own things, my own status, in order to help you walk in obedience to the Lord. It's the love of Paul when he said, I would give up even my own salvation if that somehow that would bring my unbelieving brothers in the Jewish nation to come to believe in Christ and find salvation. That's the love of Christ, self-sacrifice. You see, it's important you get that because that's the attitude in which the communication must take place. And then in verse 21 and 22, this is the wonderful twist in the story of the other direction. The eastern tribes are horrified, horrified when they hear how their actions in building this altar were interpreted by the western tribes. Matter of fact, the first thing they say is, if your interpretation of our actions is correct and we did this to set up our own worship site and to 
rebel against the Lord, then go ahead and punish us because we deserve it. That's the right thing to do. But, they say, that's not why we did it. You misunderstood our intentions. You misunderstood our intentions. Look at verse 25. Ironically, that's the wonderful twist in the story, they actually built the altar as a symbol of loyalty to the Lord, a symbol of loyalty to the true worship site in Shiloh, at the true tabernacle and the true sacrifices. They never intended to offer any sacrifices on it, and they intended it as a symbol of unity with the people on the western side of the Jordan. And then they tell this, and this is very reasonable. They said, what will happen in the lives of our children and our grandchildren? Things are good now. We understand who we are in the Lord. But in the lives of our children and grandchildren, it's very easy for them to imagine. We know what geographical barriers can do in, in, in the world. It's very easy for the, the people on the western side of the Jordan, the original promised land, to feel like they're the true people of God. They're the ones who got the real promised land. And those people on the wrong side of the tracks, or the wrong side of the river, are the ones that just aren't quite right. They're not right with a God. They're only second-class citizens, and then very quickly they become no-class citizens. That was their concern. They said, we need some symbol to remind us that our God is the same God as the Western tribes. Our way of approaching this God is the same way as the Western tribes approach God. And that's what the altar was to remind them, their children, and their grandchildren about. When I read this, I thought, you know, when I was a brand new Christian, I wore a cross around my neck. And that was important to my identity. And, you know, that cross was a symbol of sacrifice. The sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But my hope wasn't in the cross that was around my neck. The cross was just a meaningless piece of metal. But it pointed to where my hope really was, which was the one true Lamb of God that unites us to our holy God through his death on the cross. And it was also not only to remind me of where my hope really was in the one true God and his only son, Jesus Christ, but it also was to remind me that I share this hope with every true Christian wherever they are in the world. So like this altar, it was meant to be a symbol that pointed me to my true hope and to my unity with all my brothers and sisters in the faith. And so when Phineas and the other representatives of the Western tribes hear this, they rejoice. And the story does end on a good note. They praise God that he has worked in this situation to deliver them from civil war, from division. This is included to teach us how to pursue purity and peace, truth and unity in the church today. We have that ongoing obligation and the first lesson that we learn from this story is that true unity comes from seeking truth together. True unity comes from seeking truth together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you, that all of you agree. Notice that's what he's talking about, unity. And he starts by saying, I want you all to agree and that there be no divisions among you. You see how he's saying agreeing and no divisions go together? But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. How does that happen? 
we have the same mind and the same judgment and we agree as our own opinions come increasingly into conformity with what the Word of God teaches. That's how we agree. That's how we became, become of the same mind. Unity can only come through agreement in truth. We read the chapter earlier in Ephesians 4 in our responsive reading where it talks about there's only one God, one faith, one baptism. These, this unity that we have, do you notice it talks beautifully about the unity that we have in Christ and then what does it then say how it happens? What's the rest of that chapter? It says that God gives pastors, teachers, evangelists to teach the word of God so that in growing in the word of God, you grow in spiritual maturity. And as you grow in spiritual maturity, you grow in unity. See the connection between unity and growing in understanding and knowledge and affirmation of the truth. That's how unity comes. You see, this is coming to us. The church has the biggest challenge of this in this cultural context as we've ever had it. Because we live in a culture that has lost any concept of truth. And, you know, you don't have to have lived that long to see the progression that's happened. A generation or so ago, absolute truth that came, became a consensus in our culture that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Well then, how do you live? How do you interact? How do you do anything in a world where there's no absolute truth? Well, the next step was to say that we must tolerate all beliefs and practices. All actions and beliefs have to be tolerated. And so tolerance became the one creed of our culture. You must tolerate everything. Well, that, as we know and as we have found out, leads to chaos. And when there's chaos, there's no agreement, and yet we have to be tolerant. What's, what's left is you're in this situation where people become more intolerant because of their insecurity. And that's what we're seeing happening today. People are so insecure about what they believe and what they do out there because they've given up any sense of absolute truth and they found out that tolerance has left them in chaos. So what do you do? Well, you gotta somehow find something to grab onto. And when there is no absolute truth, you grab onto labels. You grab onto prejudgments about one another. And this is one of the underlying reasons for why we can't have dialogue in our culture anymore. Because once you get labeled, then you don't get listened to. You're a Trump supporter, so I have, you have nothing to say to me. You're dead to me. Oh, you're a Trump hater. Well, you have nothing to say to me. I won't listen to you. You're a liberal. You're a conservative. You're a millennial. You're a baby boomer. We, we got to put labels on everybody because of this chaos that we've created. And once we put the label on everybody, then we don't have to listen to them. And that's what you see on cable news networks. Nobody listens. There's no real debate. No, people don't know how to debate anymore because there's no attempt to find common ground because this culture has rejected the concept of a common ground. And we end up being the most ignorant and judgmental generation that our culture has probably seen. We shout at each other, we talk over each other, and we refuse to listen to each other. People are so complex. I mean, if you're in the room now and you have a whole different social, political, 
economic status and lifestyle and mindset than what I have. You're a very complex person. I don't want to label you. I want to sit down and talk to you. I want to hear where, where you've come from, what's led you to believe what you believe. But more than that, I want to take you back to Scripture. I want me to be taken by you back to Scripture. I want us to judge our preconceptions and our biases and our backgrounds and our cultures and our traditions by what the Scripture says, because that's where unity happens. It happens in truth. The Church of Jesus Christ must stand out in a culture like this, in the way that we regard truth. There is only one absolute truth, and it is the Word of God which points to Jesus Christ. This is the truth. We are, in the Oakwood Presbyterian Church, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we call ourselves a confessional church. That means that we have a statement of faith which is a confession of faith. It's a long document. If you've ever looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was written over 350 years ago, and it is a summary of what we believe the scriptures teach. And it is incredibly detailed. It's full of very dense definitions of doctrine and practice. And you might look at that and say, wow, you know, that's very exclusive of you. But it's our understanding that the deeper we agree about what the Word of God teaches, the deeper our unity and sanctification will be. I, you know, you go to a lot of churches' websites, you want to find out what a church believes, I'm sure you've tried to shop for a church and you want to go to the website and say, what does this church believe? But probably more than half of them, you'll find some kind of a statement of faith, which are ten sentences usually, very short, simple, simply worded sentences about what they believe. And they refuse to go beyond that because they want to stress what we agree. And, I, and I, probably we agree with, with all those who would call themselves evangelicals and have those statements of faith. But one thing I learned, when I was a brand new believer, I was told that doctrine divides. My family told me that. Don't get into deep biblical doctrine. Don't dig deep in the scriptures because one, like, once you get into that secondary stuff, it divides you. Just stay on the real basics. And I've tried that for a while and realized that I became anemic in my Christian life. That I wanted to know the deeper things, the secondary things. I wanted to dive deep into Scripture. But here's the important point. That's, that's the confession of faith will drive you deep into what Scripture teaches. And we try to find our unity there. And you don't have to agree with everything that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith in order to be a member here. You don't have to agree with everything, except you have to agree with a subset of it. Because in that confession of faith is spelled out in clear, deep detail the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who God is, who his son is, what his son came to earth to do, what the cross means, and how faith in Christ brings salvation. It's defined for us. That's the essential. And if you believe those things, then we are one. And I will fight for unity with you in all circumstances. And then I will invite you to go along with me as we journey to try to understand the secondary things. The other things that the Word of God teaches that we as Christians struggle to agree on. But you know what? In all those things that we disagree about, God has only one opinion. It's here. I may be misunderstanding it. You may be misunderstanding it. But there's only one opinion that really matters, and it's God's opinion. So... Unity comes through seeking the truth. And the deeper we agree about the truth, the deeper our unity. That's the first point. 
The second point that we learn from this passage is that unity comes from loving communication with each other. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 18, we quote it all the time when it comes to conflict in the church. Jesus told us that when we're offended by a belief or an action in, a, in, a, in another brother or sister's lives, what did he tell us to do? Gossip about it? Find somebody who's like-minded with you and complain about that person? Sit and stew about it? Is that what he told us to do? No, he said, go and talk with them. Go and enter into dialogue with them. Listen to their heart's intentions and have a loving servant attitude towards them as you go. I just want to tell one last story before I wrap up here. I, one of the most painful jobs I've ever had as a pastor in, in our churches, we have a presbytery that you have kind of the local church and then you have the regional church, which is made up of all the churches in a given geographical region. And in our presbytery, it's a real church. And so when there's a problem, we have churches, and you've known many churches, I'm sure, at least some churches in your experience that have gone through deep divisions, fighting, conflict, and to the point where the church is splitting. And when it gets to that point, we'll send a committee or a commission of the presbytery in to talk with the people and find out what's wrong. And it's really the church being the church, going to help brothers and sisters that are having conflict to help them try to resolve it. And it's a hard job, um, largely because they wait usually wait too long to call us in until the division is very deep. But it's always interesting to me, and this has almost universally been my experience, that when we go, five or six of us on the committee or commission will go and we'll sit down with the people in the church and we'll listen. That's our job. We'll go and hear. We'll say... What, what's upset you? What are you angry about? What's offended you? What did your brother or your sister do? And we'll sit there for hours on end listening to long lists of grievances that believers have with one another. And invariably, at the end of the day, the people will go, all go home and the six of us in the committee will sit around a table and we'll look at each other and we'll look at this list and we'll say, this looks like normal church life to me. <laughs> you know, the things that people are mad about, the things that they're having grievance about, the things they're complaining about, this happens in every church. This is like this is what happens when you take redeemed sinners and put them together in a family. We offend each other. We do things. We get angry at each other. Why is it led to division? And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, why it's led to division? It's because those people did not do what the Eastern and Western tribes did. They did not pursue truth together, and they did not lovingly, with a servant heart, go to one another to listen to heart's intentions and to dialogue, and as servants try to come together. Instead, what they did is they gossiped about one another, they complained about one another to like-minded people in the congregation, and what happened over time is they lost trust in one another. And when trust is lost, division hardens. And I've seen many churches die that way. I'm going to just give you one word of assignment as we close. For the sake of the church of Jesus Christ, both here at Oakwood and wherever the Lord may lead you in whatever broader church setting, your assignment is to go and study the purity and peace of the church. Really take that vow seriously. Study the purity and the peace of the church and then practice it in Christ-like love for the sake of the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. You teach us these lessons in such unexpected ways sometimes. 
Lord, we thank you that you love the church. You taught us how to love the church. You unified the church by your work on the cross. And that is where our unity lies. Father, I pray that you would deepen within this fellowship of believers that kind of Christ-like love for one another and zeal for the truth, humble zeal for the truth, that builds true and lasting unity and bears much fruit for the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.